All right, as we are dismissing the children to Kingdom Kids, uh, ages four to nine can slip back to the foyer, and we've got a teacher back there who will take them across to the CE Center. The rest of you, I hope, will join me in Romans chapter 15, uh, letter of Paul to the Christian believers in Rome, Romans chapter 15. If you're uh, with us and you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible probably in the pew rack very close by, and the page number to that particular edition is in the order of service, and an outline is on the back to help you follow along. Romans 15, verses 1 through 13 will be our text today. When Katie and I do uh, premarital counseling with a young couple, one of the things I, I always say, sooner or later, at some point in the, in the sessions that we have, I, I, I look at the, this, this young couple and say, I, I know you two might feel like you love each other so much right now that you will never disagree, that you will never argue, that you will never fight. I, I'm hearing some laughing out right here. Some chuckling here. See, but you, you know this is where this is going. See, the thing is, though, you are, you are two human beings. You, even, even before we get to the fact of sin and selfishness that's in each one of us, you, you're just two people. You have two different perspectives, two different instincts. Um, it's why you need each other. Uh, if, if, if you were identical, if, if you, you saw everything the exact same way, you'd be redundant. One of you would be unnecessary. But you're two different people, you're together, and you will have conflict. So you better learn how to handle it. That's true in any marriage, it's true in any family, or wherever, frankly, there's more than one person, including the life of the church. Paul has been addressing conflict in the church in Romans 14 and into chapter 15 this morning, and it's been a, a particular kind of disagreement, uh, not true doctrine versus false teaching, orthodoxy versus heresy. This is about different opinions about how to live a God-honoring life. Some of the Jewish believers in Jesus held to their old ways, eating kosher, uh, keeping Sabbath, uh, those things that had set Jews apart from the world for centuries, but their fellow believers in the same church, uh, Gentiles and some other Jews, recognized that in Christ, uh, those things weren't required anymore. Uh, and so there, were, there was friction between Christians, all of whom, Paul says in chapter 14, were trying to honor the Lord in, practical everyday, in their practical everyday lives. Now, you might say, well, well, but here in our church in Mount Morris, we love each other so much that we would never disagree, that we would never argue, that we would never fight. And I say, really? See, because uh, although I, I understand that even, even before the fact that we all still sin, uh, we're, we're different people. And, and trying to honor God the best way we know how, and sometimes that, that we have to, to go by our wisdom, we, sometimes we, we land different places on how that should be lived out, and so we will have differences, and because we will have differences, we better learn to know uh, how, to, how to handle those differences. So that's the basic question of the, the sermon this morning. How do we deal with the petty differences that tend to divide God's people? How do we deal with the petty differences that tend to divide God's people? We've already been seeing some of the answers in the last two Sundays as we work through chapter 14. 
Here, chapter 15 begins, we'll just dive right into chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but that is, as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This is God's word for us today. Now, we'll cover Actually, all three points you see on the outline, we're going to cover those three points in verses 1 through 7, that first paragraph, but then verses 8 through 13 are just going to fold back over on those same themes, so that's all going to get loaded in on the, on the last part. So, big question, how do we deal with the petty differences that tend to divide God's people? Part one, with endurance. Look to Christ, who suffered for our sake as a model of sacrificial service. Now, since we didn't go back to read all of chapter 14, I should remind you the strong mentioned here in verse 1, the strong were those who did not feel constrained by Old Testament law, while the weak had a more sensitive conscience. The strong were then free to enjoy more things, things like, well, bacon, yeah, right? Uh, while the weak felt compelled to abstain in those same areas. We, we've got to eat, we got to stay uh, true to those kosher laws. So verse 1, we who are strong, as I noted in a previous week, Paul identifies with this group. So even though it was Jewish believers who more likely abstained, we, we don't want to oversimplify this to simply say, well, the Jews were the weak and the Gentiles were the strong. Paul says, Paul, a Jew, we who are strong, right? And then he talks about the failings of the weak. Not that they're doing something morally wrong, but there is something deficient there. To be strong is better than to be weak. So we've been trying to do this over the last couple of weeks, see if we can hold all of this together. In one sense, these differences are, are, are petty and insignificant uh, because Paul said you can enjoy, enjoy or abstain and honor the Lord either way. But not all viewpoints are the same. And even though one way is, in fact, better than the other, Paul doesn't come down on those who are weak. In fact, he confronts them all for how they've treated each other over those differences. These are brothers and sisters in Christ, people for whom Christ died. So he challenges, instead of 
uh, say, hey, come on, weak, let's, let's, get, let's get going, come on. Uh, he challenges the strong. What should the strong do? What must they do? It says this is their obligation. Bear with the failings of the weak, verse 1, and verse 2, build them up. Bear with and build up. Now, we talked about the, uh, a bit about the building up last week uh, because it linked back to verse 19 of chapter 14 when he said the same thing. But let's focus today on, on bearing with the failings of the weak. Build up. Build up. That seems positive. Bear with. That just seems all negative. And, and it doesn't sound very loving either. If we just all said, well, I guess I have to, you know, we're looking around at our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we say, well, I guess I have to put up with you. Uh, I'm not enjoying your fellowship. I'm enduring it. Uh, but, but, but you're not bearing with someone in, in the real sense of it if that's your attitude. That's not bearing with someone. This is not about tolerating your fellow believer. It's willingly bearing the burden so that you can be together. Why? Because that's what Christ did. Verse 3, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now, your Bible probably has a tiny letter by that, that quotation that links you back to the original reference where, this, where he's quoting from, Psalm 69, verse 9. You go back and you, you read the whole of Psalm 69, and you see it's talking about a godly person who experiences unjust suffering. So not, not someone who's a, a bad guy who's getting what they deserve, someone who's doing what's right, who's seeking to follow God, a, a righteous person, and yet they're, they're suffering for it. And this one line from this long poem, he's saying, God, these people that are, that are harassing me, these people hate you, but they're taking it out on me. This, it really stinks. I mean, I'm, I'm hurting down here, and it's because I'm being loyal to you. I, I am having to bear their insults, their contempt. Now, later in the Scriptures, the New Testament Gospels quote quite, uh, actually a few different lines from this same Psalm 69, pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment, the quintessential innocent sufferer, bearing the reproach in the insults he received from the religious leaders, their blasphemies, and ultimately the contempt of the cross. And now you might say, well, wow, Paul, you just, you just took this to 11. You're, it's, it's almost like you're kind of overplaying your hand here, Paul, in Romans 15. I thought we were just talking about, you know, disputed issues, differing opinions. Jesus suffering on the cross is way more than just, you know, bearing with a weaker brother. But that's kind of the point. Back in, in chapter 14, verses 3, verse 10, Paul confronted the strong who were tempted to despise the weak. But Jesus did not show contempt to the weak. He bore the contempt. He did not sit comfortably in heaven looking down on the weak and say, hey, not my problem. Instead, he bore the burden for you, for me. It's what Paul describes even more poetically in, in Philippians 2, that, that instead of clinging to his rights and privileges, thinking only of himself, Jesus humbled himself, became a servant, a willing servant to the Father's plan, a servant, a sacrifice for our sake, we who were the weak. Now, I know that for a fact in, in this room, 
Uh, I'm sure there, there are mature believers, some of whom, some of whom uh, feel free to enjoy a beer while watching the game. And some, perhaps because of the ravaging effects of alcoholism in themselves or in a loved one, would never dream of touching a drop. Both of them are seeking to honor God in their enjoying or abstaining. But when you're together, the one who feels the freedom will give it up for the sake of the brother. If there's a, what, what the stronger person uh, must do, if there's a price to pay for us to be in fellowship together, I'll gladly pay it. If you don't, if you won't bear that, then I'm not sure you know Jesus. Or at least you don't fully appreciate what he's done for you. Christ bearing the reproach to save you in spite of our great wickedness should compel you to bear with far lesser weaknesses. If we're talking about a brother's sin, yeah, of course, we should not ignore that. If we're talking about uh, abuse, we're not called to bear that from, from each other. Just put up with it? No. But this when a brother or sister is living with different convictions that may inconvenience you, remember Jesus. Look to Christ who suffered for our sake as a model of sacrificial service. So the first way we deal with petty, ind- petty differences that tend to divide God's people with endurance. Second, through encouragement. Look to God whose word has been fulfilled as a source of hope. So verse 4, just that one. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now, at one level, it's not hard to follow uh, what Paul's doing here. He had just quoted uh, Psalm 69, verse 9, and then verse 4, he, now he's talking about the value of the Scriptures in the believer's life. Okay, but but why is he talking about encouragement and hope? I I didn't think we were talking about people who were discouraged. Where's he going with this? Well, you need to understand what he means by this endurance and encouragement. This endurance is the bearing with that Jesus did and what we are called to do in following his his example. That's, That's endurance, that bearing with. And anybody who's being called to endurance needs encouragement, right? I mean, this is why two weeks ago at the Chicago Marathon, there were thousands of people running, but there were thousands and thousands more who were lined along the streets cheering them on. If, you're, if you have to endure, you need to, to be encouraged. How do you do the hard things that are demanded of you as a believer? Well, here you turn to Scripture for encouragement. Paul says that's why it was written. That's why all these words were written down, put in this book. That's why we have this book, why Christians cling to this book, hold on to this book, come back to this book again and again. We need this word for our encouragement, every word written down so that you and I would have it, so that we could endure the encouragement we need to keep going. Now, maybe you do a daily reading from a uh, devotional for inspiration. Maybe you have an app on your phone that gives you a verse for the day or something like that. Again, encouragement to keep you going. I'm sure some of, some of us here have some art on the walls of your home and maybe in some nice calligraphy, uh, you know, for I know the plans I have for you. Or, or maybe, uh, fear not, for I am with you. Be not afraid, for I am your God. Uh, any, anybody have Psalm 69, verse 9 on their wall? 
the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Probably not. Doesn't seem very, you know, positive and encouraging. Uh, not, doesn't feel like hope. But Paul says whatever was written was written for our instruction. So what could we learn from that verse being fulfilled by Jesus that would encourage you and me to give us hope as we are called to endure, as we are called to bear with? I can think of at least two ways that that verse should encourage us. You are not alone, and this is not the end. See, you are not alone in your suffering. You read Psalm 69, and, and it's not just a, a prediction of Jesus. It's, it's a profile of a righteous sufferer, someone who's devoted to God, and yet they're, they're suffering for it. And you can't read Psalm 69 and hold on to the, to the idea that, well, if God's people just do good, if God's people just obey, then it's all blessings. It's all, life is easy. Things just fall into place. You can't get that. You can't hold on to that idea reading Psalm 69. No, sometimes the righteous suffer. Think of Job or Joseph or Jesus. Of course, Jesus. Don't, he is the example here par excellence. So don't dismiss the call to bear with one another because you think a child of God should never have to suffer. What about the son? He suffered for our sake. So the first way that that verse, Psalm 69, probably won't put it on your wall, but the first way it should be an encouragement, the would, would be hope to you, if you're suffering, you are not alone. You are in a long line of righteous sufferers in line behind Jesus. Second way I said, this is not the end. You are not alone. This is not the end. Your suffering is not the end of the story. Psalm 69 ends with God delivering his people so that they dwell in peace and security in the place that God has prepared for them. Now, wasn't that true of Jesus' sufferings as well? The cross only seemed like the end of the story. The, the contempt he bore on the cross only seemed like the end. But there was resurrection to new life. There was glory, ascension to the right hand of the Father with the promise of return in glory for all those who belong to him. God's word truly does promise blessing beyond imagination for those who are his, who are faithful to the end. We get all this mixed up when, you know, some TV preachers known for this, twisting God's word, say that you can have all the blessings now without having to suffer. They take advantage of desperate people, people who are sick, people who are poor, think, think that, thinking that God's going to give them a miraculous cure or a new car if they just pray hard enough or send a little more money to that address that's on the screen right now. There are incredible blessings of God. There is an eternal inheritance that comes in the end on the other side of suffering for Christ's sake. We, we heard this from Paul in Romans 8. Verses 16 and 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Well, so do children not have to suffer? No, no, no. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him 
in order that we may also be glorified with him. Glory, yes, on the other side of suffering with Jesus and for his namesake. So believe me, for for all the ways that that push back on, on those other guys talking out there trying to sell you something, this preacher here this morning, I want you to have this hope, the kind of hope that helps you to endure, enables you to sacrifice, whether it's the sacrifice of leaving everything behind to, to go and serve the Lord as a missionary or just the simple sacrifice of serving in the nursery on a Sunday morning. I get it. We're, we're, it doesn't feel good or fun. It's, it is a sacrifice for your brothers and sisters for the sake of God being known among all of us together. Thank you for, th- for that, for others, for men who who's give up a Saturday morning to help somebody move, to, to help someone in the body of Christ. These are the, these are the kind of sacrifices, the bearing with and the, and the helping one another, bearing one another's burdens, the same uh, verb that's here. This is what we do as God's people. And that gives us the encouragement, the hope. Where do you get this hope? Through endurance, Jesus' endurance, yes, and ours, following after him, and through the encouragement of the Scripture. So I hope you, hope you don't look at this as just some old book. This was written for you, Paul says. This is, this is God speaking to you in his word. These are his promises. This is his unfolding plan. This is his unfailing purpose that is spread before us. Verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. How do we deal with petty differences that tend to divide God's people? We do it for the glory of God. Live together Redeemed, reconciled, and rejoicing as a people for his praise. So here's the thing. You and I have been called to unity, to harmony, and it does require action on our part. It does require sacrifice, surrendering our rights and privileges for others, just like Jesus did. But I hope, I hope you see these verses put, put it all into perspective, doesn't it? It's ultimately, it's all from God. He is the God of endurance and encouragement. Yes, we get that from Scripture, but it's, it's God speaking to us. It's all from God. He is the one who can bring us together in such a way that as each of us follows Christ, that as each of us walk in accord with His ways, that we go from clashing with one another to blending beautifully in perfect harmony. And the point of it all is not just so that we'd get along, stop pointing fingers, Stop blaming or condemning each other. It's so that the song that we sing when our voices become one is a song of praise, lifted to the Lord and for the glory of God. That's why, that's why, welcoming, that, that's why we welcome others just like Christ did in welcoming us, verse 7, for the greater glory of God. That's what we do according to Christ's example, for the purpose of God's glory. So we need to ask ourselves, does the glory of God motivate me? Does it, does it motivate us as a, as a church? Does it motivate me to, to open 
our doors, open our arms, open our hearts to other believers and beyond to those who we would say, yes, we, you, you can be a part of this when you come to faith in Christ. We, we want you to, to, to know Jesus and to become a part of this life, this fellowship together. So that's true, of course, of, of getting to know other Christians. You may, I'm, I'm sure you, you know, people that go to other churches and you, you have to understand, you kind of navigate through differences. You know, some, some differences are significant, yes. Some are just, you know, it's a different tradition. It's a different uh, denomination or hist- with a different history and heritage. But some things, yes, significant. Other things, how do we navigate the things that are just not important? They're, they're, we, we have to focus on what is the most important thing. Does God's intention for the church compel us then to do what it takes to set aside our disagreements over non-essential issues in order to show the world how good God is? That's a big deal. See, the world won't see the glory of God if they only see us squabbling over our favorite politicians or our preferred style of music. When we can't, think of it this way, when we as a body of believers can't work through our differences, what we're saying is this thing is more important to me than a soul for whom Christ died. This, having things my way, is more important than the kingdom of God. This is the highest good. I am the highest authority. But you, you turn that all around the other way, when God is seen as our greatest good, when we set aside the things that don't matter, when we, we won't let anything stand in our way of our voices united in praise, then we show the world that there is something bigger. Something bigger than my agenda and your agenda. Something bigger than my party or your party, your tribe, my tribe, our way, my way, your way. Doesn't the world need to see that right now? A place where, where we, we can... We, we focus on what's truly important, the glory of God, and we let other things leave them aside. Verse 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you in the same way that he's done that for you. Why? For the glory of God. And then everything after that, verses 8 to 13, is just Paul driving home this point. Remember how the, these tensions in the church in Rome had to do with differences between Uh, some of the Jews' old covenant laws and other believers, particularly Gentiles, without that heritage. And Paul has to remind them what he taught in greater detail earlier in the letter. Jews, you got in to this people through Jesus. Gentiles, you got in through Jesus. So verse 8 and 9, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, the Jews, to show God's truthfulness, truthless of his word, of his promises, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, that they would know his salvation as well. As it is written, now here, remember, remember what he said earlier in the first paragraph, everything that was written is written for our instruction. So he's going to give us, we're, we're going to get some, a lesson here. Some more instructions. And here Paul points them to the screen. Now, I'm not talking about our screen here this morning uh, in the room. Just imagine Paul having one 
And of course, he's writing a letter. So let's, let's say instead of writing a letter, he's on a Zoom call with these believers in Rome. And he's like, okay, I'm going to put some slides up on the screen here. Just, just watch. I'm going to click through. I put together a slideshow, PowerPoint presentation to remind you. Uh, we're going to click through uh, all these verses to, to remind you of the unity of believers as one people and that Jew and Gentile together for his glory. That was according to God's plan. It was through God's power. It was for God's praise. Paul says, are you ready? We're going to click through these, okay? Uh, see if you remember this from God's word. He, he clicks, first slide, uh, chap, uh, verse 9, the quotation there, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. That's David speaking, recorded in both 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 18. Okay, so that's talking about God's people praising him, and the nations around are hearing this praise, seeing their praise, the praise of God's people. Okay, next slide, verse 10. Uh, and again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Okay, that one's from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32. It's telling the Gentiles, the nations, to rejoice with Israel. Deuteronomy is saying that? The law of Moses anticipates the Gentiles being included in God's praise? Next slide, Paul says. Read, read verse 11. Uh, and again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. That's Psalm 117. This is not just inviting a handful of Gentiles to sing alongside Israel. No, this psalm, God's word, is calling all peoples to worship him. And this song of invitation had been sung by Israel for generations after generations. And they were saying to the nations, join our song of praise. Next slide. Verse 12, and I, again, Isaiah says, so, so now we've got, we've got a prophet. Uh, in our, our little slideshow we've had here, we've had the law and the prophets and the writings. All three sections of the Hebrew Scriptures are together giving witness to this, this truth. So verse 12 here, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Oh. Jesse, if you don't know, was the father of King David, except Isaiah is writing many generations after David. So he can't be talking about David as the root of Jesse. He's talking about a descendant, a royal descendant who will rule not only Israel, but also all the nations, all the peoples, ruling over the nations of the world. Most of the Israelites would naturally remember that part, but the last line would be a, a shocker. In him, in Messiah... Will the Gentiles hope? Gentiles conquered by Messiah? Oh yeah, we, we, we like that part. Gentiles looking to Messiah for life, for their future, for their eternity. Gentiles saved through faith in this Messiah? Could it be? Yes, this is what God's word said. And you could tell this is connected to the idea of faith, the Gentiles' faith by that next verse. Well, I should, I should actually point back to the, what, is he, what he said in verse 9, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. That, I mean, there's clearly salvation there that he's referring to. And also forgiveness of sin welcomed into the family. It's what the whole passage is about. But here, in, uh, before I read verse 13, I should just point out quickly, you'll see Father, Son, and Spirit all there in 12 and 13. So the end of 12 in him, in Messiah, in the Son of God, in Jesus Christ, will the Gentiles hope. And now may the God, 
the Father of hope, fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Just like verses 4 and 5 earlier in the, in the chapter, the scriptures are for us. And it's for us because he says, they will fill you. May the, may the God of, of hope fill you, believers in Rome, fill you, believers in Mount Morris, with all joy and peace in believing, just like he did for Jews and Gentiles in his plan, in his, written down in his word, so that you and I would see it and join in the song. It gives us, this God of hope, gives us joy and peace in believing. That is through our shared faith in Christ. He is the one who makes the voices of Jew and Gentile, man and woman, young and old, rich and poor, black and white, come together in perfect harmony for his praise. I, I was part of a, a singing group, a vocal ensemble back in college, which was one of the most enjoyable things I've done, partly because the, the, the fun of harmonizing with other singers. And the, the, the director who put together the group, just eight voices, four guys, four girls, two sopranos, two altos, two tenors, two basses, and, and putting together voices that would go together. And then, and not just the selection of those voices, but the voices then practicing and working together, going over and, and listening, standing in such a way so that you could hear one another and, and tempering your, you know, changing your volume so that you were supporting and enhancing and working together to blend beautifully. This is what God has done. God has, has as we come to him in faith, he is putting together a people for his praise. And he's calling us to listen, to, to, to modulate our volume, to sing in such a way so that it all fits together beautifully. And the Spirit of God, present in each believer and among us all, will make that hope, the, 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 the sense of, uh, of how God's, God's really doing something here. He is making something that gives us hope that there, there is something more for us that God's promises are being fulfilled. That's the encouragement of the Scriptures so that we might have hope. Or, as we could look back to Romans 5, it says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The call here is, yes, we, we, we are called to do something. Yes, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, he is the example and the, and the aim, the purpose, the goal for the glory of God. But ultimately, he says before and after, may God do this. May the God of encouragement and endurance and encouragement, may the God of hope be the one who creates this by his power in us. So yes, put, put up the, the call to us, put up with the little things that threaten to come between us for the sake of the big thing that God has called us to to show his glory. Put up with the petty issues in God's people because he put us together for his praise. And how do we know 
that he will accomplish this? Through his word, yes. But because he is the God of hope. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom and grace. Wisdom to understand the issues when we're dealing with something that is a, that is a, a truth issue, a, a true or false. This is where we have to take our stand. And, and wisdom to understand when we're dealing with something that's just not that important. Oh, we need, we need that wisdom. God, help, I pray that, that we would be so familiar with the scriptures that, that we would be able to discern those issues. But Lord, your, scripture, your, your word has been given to us not simply so that we can settle debates. Your word's been given to us so we would be strengthened, encouraged as we live in a time and a place and a world where we, there's a lot we've got to put up with. Even, with, even within our own family believers, God, sometimes we just have to put up with things. But I pray more than that, we would bear with one another for Christ's sake and for your glory. God, would you do that? Make us a place where there is such joy and peace in believing by the power of your Spirit that all people, all people would be drawn to you. Do that work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.